Good. I mean, why does it seem that we can't get out of our own way? Hmm? In this bumper video, we, we meet a character that we'll call John, a, a fictional character, John, who is able to put into words a lot of the struggle that, and a lot of the emotion that we feel as Christ followers. We want to live by grace. We aspire to be these faithful, kingdom-centric types of people. But often we, we get in our own way and we almost as if we forget the things that we have aspired to. And we find sometimes the opposite is true, that instead of living selflessly, we become selfish. And instead of wanting to live empowered by the Holy Spirit, we, we actually live without the Holy Spirit. This guy on the video, his name is Bassam, and I have known Bassam all my life. In fact, my parents and his parents were dear, close friends back in Egypt. And they immigrated over here. They found each other on the East Coast. And I've known Bassam and his family all my life. And it, it, so I remember when I applied to work at Grace Chapel, I said, hey, I just submitted an application to work, I think, at the church that you're a part of. Do you know anybody on the search committee? <laughs> He's like, no, I don't know a soul. <laughs> I don't know anybody in leadership. Okay, we'll just pray then. <laughs> and here we are. He's a really great guy. He really, really is. And I'm so proud of him. I'm so grateful for him. Um, but because he's one of my closest friends, he was the best man at my wedding and, and, I, and vice versa. I want you to know that he is amongst the worst, the awfulest, is that a word? One of the most terrible fantasy football player managers that you can ever have in your league. I mean, he is just involved in fantasy football scandals, and he has ruined leagues. I mean, just, just stay away from him in fantasy football. But everything else in life, he's a gem. He really is. But life is tough out there, isn't it? I mean, it's common for someone to just sit down with me and, and say, I know I'm supposed to do this, but in the moment, I find myself doing the exact opposite, and it just takes over me. I mean, can you relate to that? I mean, we just find ourselves in so many different battles, interpersonal battles and relationships and work-life issues, the, the work-life rhythms, but, but also our, our working relationships too. We find ourselves in political battles and societal issues. And one thing that, that I, uh, I've been thinking about a lot lately is the generational tension that a lot of us find ourselves in. I mean, it's been on my mind quite, quite a bit, and I'm actually probably going to pursue some type of further education on generational studies, because I'm really concerned about the future of the church and how our respective generations are going to be working together and serving together and worshiping together in the future of the church. And right now, there's this popular and condescending meme making the rounds these days. Maybe you've seen it. OK, Boomer. And it has a just as condescending response back with it called OK Millennial. And as a Gen Xer, I can't help but laugh a little bit at, at, at both sides. Yes. So oh, the OK Boomer memes has, has kind of been in the air for the past few years. And just earlier this month, it kind of took on an even bigger life than its own when a member of parliament in New Zealand was, was giving a, a speech on climate change. 
and an older member of the same parliament uh, disputed one of the claims that the younger lady was making, and she replied back just like in an instant, okay, boomer. And that went viral, and it made the rounds, and it's become a bit of an anthem for, for millennials. Uh, there's a song called OK Boomer that you can find. Uh, and just yesterday, in the Harvard-Yale football game, a group of activist students uh, came onto the field and, and disrupted the game. And as they were being ushered off, they were chanting, OK Boomer. Now, it's tough. I mean, it's, it's, I, I do chuckle a little bit, but I worry about what is behind that. Boomers and millennials and Xers and Gen Zers and builders. You've heard these terms for a long time, but here's a quick refresher of what they are. Here, here's the generations in the U.S. from 1925 to 1945 are the builders, also called the silent generation or the greatest generation, as, as a great book, as a famous book has called them. And they come out of the Great Depression and help build American society, and they do a, a remarkable job at that. The boomers from 1946 and 1964, uh, they, you know a lot about them, I'm sure, uh, but they are maximizers. Uh, they have make, made things efficient. They have brought technological and financial reform and also revolution to our society. And they've done so much good things for us. The Gen Xers, that's my generation uh, from 1965 to 1979. I, because I'm a Gen Xer, I, I also added in the Xennials, because I, I, I think more of, as a mixture of Xer and millennial, Xennials. And it really depends on what they taught you in eighth grade. Typing, word processing, or computers. It depends on when you got online, uh, what pop culture references that you really loved when you were, when you were going through your adolescence. Uh, Xers hate being labeled. So anything that I'm about to describe about the Xers, other Xers in the room are going to be like, no, bro, that, that's actually not how it is. Even me saying that Xers don't like being labeled, Xers would respond with, I don't like to be known as somebody who doesn't like to be labeled. Okay? Like that, that's, how, that's how Xers do it. Uh, so we'll move on. Uh, millennials from 1980 to 1994. And, you know, one of my favorite things about the millennial generation is that they are sensitive. They would desire to give voice to all. Uh, they want people to be recognized for who they truly are, and they've done a fantastic and beautiful job at many of those things. Gen Zs, the oldest of them, are in their earlier early 20s right now, and they are a passionate, wonderful generation. Also, um, studies have shown that they are a very moral generation, conservative in a few uh, family types of values. Uh, they are going to be something. You just watch out for those Gen Zs because they're going to be special. And then there's Generation Alpha, born 2013, and we are grateful for, for Generation Alpha. We love having them in church. We love having them wherever it is that they are, and we're looking forward to what God is going to do with them. And so may we, may we be faithful kingdom builders for, for these younger generations. But there's a lot of generational strife. I mean, I, I was sharing the things that I liked most about the, our respective generations, but there is a lot of generational strife. And one of the things that, as we've been talking about the series, this topic on grace, one of the things that I've been discovering is that we have very little grace to show our respective generations, don't we? The boomers and the millennials are not showing a lot of grace to each other. And here we are, the last week of our Experiencing Grace series. And as you may remember, we began back in September with a very practical uh, experience grace idea. What does grace look like here at Grace Chapel? 
And there were messages on gathering on Sundays, connecting in groups and serving and giving and inviting and going and doing. And then about a month and a half ago, we shifted our series to examine what grace looks like in the New Testament, specifically this book of Galatians and what Paul says about it. And throughout these weeks, we've heard Paul repeat over and over, don't order your lives around false religious rules, but instead live according to God's beautiful and powerful and redemptive grace. That's what we're doing. And so we come to the end of the series, and we also come to the end of this book. And I want you to look at a familiar passage in Galatians chapter 5, but we're going to be reading it out of the message translation, because I know some of you have been in church a long time, and you've heard these words a lot in the NIV, but I want to disrupt you a little bit tonight. I want you to see it out of the message translation, okay? So, so here it is, starting in verse 13 in chapter 5. And Paul writes, it is absolutely clear that God has called you to a free life. Just make sure that you don't use this freedom as an excuse to do whatever you want to do and destroy your freedom. Rather, use your freedom to serve one another in love. That's how freedom grows. For everything we know about God's word is summed up in a single sentence. Love others as you love yourself. That's an act of true freedom. If you bite and ravage each other, watch out. In no time at all, you'll be annihilating each other. And where will your precious freedom be then? As we look through the book of Galatians, again, Paul is saying it's not about religious rules. It's about love. It's about grace. It's about compassion and kindness for all. And it's about being led by the Spirit. And here in this part, he says this very ironic thing. If you want to enjoy freedom you have to serve others. Now, I grew up, like, like most people, thinking like, you know, when I was a kid, I can't wait to be older because then I will do whatever I want to do. And I always remember there was some obnoxious adult in the room saying, that's actually not true. You don't just get to do whatever you want to do. That's not adulthood. We have responsibilities and all this stuff. But I never understood that as a kid. And then as I start reading the text in, in, here in Galatians, this idea of if you do whatever you want to do, you will actually end up with less freedom. I mean, that is ironic. And if you want more freedom, Paul is saying that you actually have to serve. That's where, that's where the freedom comes from. And I, and I wonder about this, because like, like this is part of my, my personality, and I also think it's part of my generational trait to question everything. Is this true? I mean, let's test it. Who are the freest people that we know? Are the freest people we know, are they the wealthiest and the most powerful? Because that's what I was raised in thinking that th th those were the people who had the most freedom. But I've also come to know in my 40-some my years in life that some of the wealthiest and most powerful people are actually bound and imprisoned by those same concepts and those same blessings that are meant to actually free them. Is the opposite true? Are, are the freest people those without wealth and freedom? And I don't think that is correct either. Some people are very imprisoned by the fact that they don't have resources and they don't have an ability to, to make certain choices and decisions. Are those in the middle, are they the freest? No, not exactly. And for most of us in Western society, 
we tend to measure our happiness and freedom with metrics of wealth and power. And Paul is pulling the rug out from all of that. The Apostle Paul is saying, that's not what freedom is about at all. And he's starting a new thread for us. If you want to enjoy the freedom God has given you, don't use that freedom selfishly. Use your freedom to serve others. That's how it grows. That can't possibly be true, can it? Well, let's keep reading. In verse 16, it says, My counsel is this. Live freely, animated, and motivated by God's Spirit. Then you won't feed the compulsions of selfishness. For there is a root of sinful self-interest in us that is at odds with a free spirit. And just as the free spirit is incompatible with selfishness, these two ways of life are antithetical so that you cannot live at times one way and at times another way according to how you feel on any given day. Why don't you choose to be led by the Spirit and so escape the erratic compulsions of a law-dominated existence? Now, Paul talks about this in the book of Romans, too, if you're familiar with that. This idea of when I want to do good, evil is right there with me. And doesn't this feel like the crux of life? I don't do what I want to do. And I'm trying to do better, but oh man, something just is just pulling me back. We get it. And we feel that we, that we are prone to, to, to miss out. We feel that if we serve our brothers and sisters too much, that, that no, nothing will be left for us and that we will be left behind. And if I give all my time and resources and advice to everyone around me and people forget me, I, I won't have enough. And the temptation is always dangled in front of us to take what you can, to take what you're supposed to so that you'll be okay. Because you don't want to have this feeling of FOMO, fear of missing out, and you hate this feeling of jealousy and envy that you have. And like, am I going to regret not taking advantage of this opportunity? Are we going to regret doing all of this for this particular person? And is this going to become a broken relationship in the future? Are we going to regret giving all of this away? Are we going to regret that? Or should we watch out a little bit for ourselves? These are the tempting thoughts that we all wrestle with. Verse 19, it goes on. It is obvious what kind of life develops out of trying to get your own way all the time. Repetitive, loveless, cheap sex, a stinking accumulation of mental and emotional garbage, frenzied and joyless grabs for happiness, trinket gods, magic show religion, paranoid, paranoid loneliness, cutthroat competition, all-consuming yet never satisfied wants, a brutal temper, an impotence to love or be loved, divided homes and divided lives, small-minded and lopsided pursuits, the vicious habit of depersonalizing everyone into a rival, uncontrolled and uncontrollable addictions, ugly parodies of community. I could go on. Please don't. That list was enough. This isn't the first time I've warned you. You know, you, if you use your freedom this way, you will not inherit God's kingdom. Well, bless you for, for sticking with it here. I mean, that is a lot to take in. It really is. But is this what a life of freedom looks like? Of course not. Yet, we watch all these celebrities 
in front of us with all the looks and the fame and the wealth and the cool and all of that, and some of them live such terrible, tragic lives. And they come on talk shows and they, they tell us about their stints in rehab and, and of the pain brought upon by drug and sex addiction. And some are never heard from again. And I don't mean this to be like, don't be a celebrity. <laughs> That's bad. I don't mean that at all. I mean, God bless them all. And may they discover life with God and joy and salvation and hope for, for them and for all people. That, that, we're, we're rooting for everybody. But I just want to point out that what society promotes is rarely helpful to us. What society promotes is rarely helpful to us. And sadly, you don't even have to be a celebrity to really be ruined by what Paul is describing. I mean, you can be known by millions or you can be known by only a few to experience what, what Eugene Peterson in the message translation says, the pain of stinking accumulation of mental and emotional garbage or this frenzied and joyless grab for happiness. And did you catch that warning to the religious folks? Did you catch it? Trinket gods and magic show religion? Oh man, this is why I love the, the message translation. Now, I, I have here this, if, if you're not sure where to begin in the Bible, uh, or if you just feel like you've read it, but like you're just, uh, you're, you're just kind of floundering a little bit, I want to encourage you to make this Christmas gift for yourself, okay? And maybe even give it to somebody around you. It's called The Message Remix. And if you're like me and you grew up reading the NIV, um, or, or, and there's probably a King James version of it too, but it has both texts side by side. So it has the NIV on this side and the message translation on that side. Because sometimes like you're reading that and you're like, I'm not even sure where we are right now in this book. I'm pretty familiar with this book. And so you kind of just match them along. And I am telling you, it has blessed my love and appreciation for scripture. And it, ha it, is, just, it is just good for my life. I hope it's good for yours too. But trinket gods and magic show religion. I mean, it's that, it's that idea of empty religion and shallow faith and cheap grace that we've talked about here over and over. It's that type of empty Christianity that, that attempts to pacify God. It's that type of Christianity that, that tries just to impress those around you. And it's primarily rooted for personal gain and image management. You might recognize it as the life of the Pharisee. It's a terrible m mindset. I was reading this book um, called uh, Talking to Strangers by Malcolm Gladwell. And Malcolm Gladwell is one of my favorite authors lately. And I, I love his book Outliers and Blink. Um, and there's a few others. And I listened to his podcast, Revisionist History. And so he was coming to Boston. I was all excited. So I went to go see him. And, and he also was a speaker at this event called Q Commons. And he, he leads off both Q Commons and one of the earlier chapters in his book by talking about spies. And he's like, there's this famous spy called the mountain climber. And I'm like, wow, I don't even know we can know anything about spies because I thought the whole thing was a secret. So like, I'm like dialed in. I'm like, tell me about the spies, <laughs> okay? And the mountain climber, he had like this really great career in the Cold War era and his country said to him, we need some spies in Cuba. And so the mountain climber forms a team of spies in Cuba, and he's a really great spy. I mean, he is known, regarded as the greatest spy that America has ever, has ever had. He's, he's uncanny at his 
whatever the spy craft actually is. So he's really good at it. And he's doing his thing in Cuba and he's forming a team. And he does such a great job and uh, he gets promoted to this position in the Pentagon. And he's got this really great office in Langley. And he's just there doing his thing. He's lecturing. He's, he's just a thought leader on, on, on the world of spycraft. Years later, he gets summoned to an American embassy in Europe, according to Gladwell. And there's another spy from a different country who says, I have to talk to the mountain climber. So they get the two of them in the same room, and the doors are closed. There's just the two of them in the room. And this other spy says to the great mountain climber, he says, I have to tell you some things that you're really going to be upset about. There is a spy that you set up in Cuba who is actually a double agent. He works for Fidel Castro, not you. And the mountain climber was, oh my goodness, how, how could this happen? I can't believe I didn't, I didn't, I didn't get that. Well, but, oh, man, this is part of the, the world of spycraft. And the other agent says, I got more bad news. There's another spy that you have set up in Cuba who's also a double agent. Oh my goodness, two! No, no, it's more than two. And he goes through the list, and pretty much his entire team that he set up in Cuba are double agents employed by the Cuban government. And then he says, in all those times that you thought you were being really sneaky, they have all your phone calls, all your records, all everywhere that you've been, everything that you were doing, they know about everything. Don't ever go back to Cuba. <laughs> it would be trouble for you. And the point of the story is this. Our best spy is not really that good of a spy. I mean, spies are supposed to be good at figuring out who's lying to them. This guy isn't good at it. And he's the best. And Gladwell says, you think you're really good at picking out the people who are lying to you. And they got news for you. The statistics show that you are probably worse than our best spy. And he's really bad at it too. And you, and you start, because we all hate this feeling of being lied to. We all hate this feeling of being conned and being deceived. And we know what that feels like. So we, we, we say what to ourselves? Never again. I'm going to figure out who's lying to me. I'm going to figure out what that looks like. And I'm going to guard myself from that. And Gladwell's saying you can't. And I think that type of mentality contributes to to this, par this, this, this uh, if we can put those words back up around verse 19, um, paranoid loneliness, cutthroat competition, all-consuming yet never satisfied wants, a brutal, temp a, a, a brutal temper, because we're afraid of being taken advantage again. Gladwell, at the end of the Q Commons interview, uh, at the end of his Q Commons talk, uh, the host of, of Q, Gabe Lyons, comes up to him and says, you know, what, what have you learned as a result of this? And he said, you know, years ago, my dad was swindled out of all of this money by a family friend. And my dad believed in, in the, the sincerity of, of this person, and he was just taken advantage of. And so I said to my dad, Dad, how are you never going to let this happen to you again? And he said, no, 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 no. I'm going to continue trusting people. I'm going to continue being generous to people. That guy did something wrong, and I shouldn't take out this idea of gracious living out on the next person. I need to continue being gracious.
And I was, I was inspired. That's what gracious living looks like. Not this huddled, controlled, paranoid way of life of, of perhaps the spy, but instead this, this, this wonderful hospitality and this wonderful love. And so if we can pick up in verse 22. We'll keep moving along. But what happens then when we live God's way? He brings gifts into our lives, much the same way that fruit appears in an orchard. Things like affection for others, exuberance about life, serenity. We develop a willingness to stick with things, a sense of compassion in the heart, and a conviction that a basic holiness permeates things and people. We find ourselves involved in loyal commitments, not needing to force our way in life, able to marshal and direct our energies wisely. Now again, for those who love scripture and find themselves intrigued by the varying translations, this, what we just read, is the famous fruits of the spirit passage in Galatians, just, just using different imagery here. Instead of fruit, there was an orchard of virtues, if you saw there. But the original list is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I said that wrong. The original list in English is, are those things. In Greek, it's something else. But we're trying, to see, we're trying to make it easy on ourselves a little bit tonight. But really, it's refreshing to hear it described in, in this new way. And, and if you could leave that up for us for a little bit, that, um, let those words kind of sink in a little bit. I mean, affection for others, don't you want that? Exuberance for life, yes, please. Serenity, serenity now. Any, any, any experts remember uh, the, the, the Seinfeld reference from George Costanza? There's three of us in the room. God bless you. Well done. <laughs> Serenity now. It, it continued a willingness to stick with things and compassion in the heart. These are all God's way of doing life. This is the fruit of living out God's grace when you're empowered by the Holy Spirit. And I'm telling you, that would make a difference in our relationships. That would make a difference in our work climate. That would make a difference at Thanksgiving this upcoming Thursday. This would make a difference in our generations. Can you bring up that, um, that, that slide again of the generations? I mean, if we applied the fruits of the Spirit or this orchard of virtues across our generations, that would be a really beautiful thing. And I want to tell you, as a Gen Xer who really avoids, tries to avoid labels and, gen and generalizations, a few thoughts on that, and, and I, I look forward to talking to you more about generational studies over, over future sermons, but some of my best friends are on this list. I mean, like, my best friends are not, you know, just confined to those I went to high school with in my exennial generation. Some really incredible people. And we also just remember when we were reading about generational studies that it's talking about patterns of behavior across millions of people some of the things that are being said about particular generations are just not true of you or the people that are, you are close to or the people that you love. They're, it's just not true. And in every generation, there are thousands upon thousands of people that transcend the, the generational traits, okay? So can you find some freedom in that as we talk about this tonight and beyond? Because some of my very favorite people in life are these terrible boomers that people are talking about. Boomers, those of you who are gathered in this room, I, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, I, I, I love you, and I'm grateful for all that you've done for, in the good of society. Many of you have been my teachers. 
and professors. Some of you are actually teaching my, my children now in Kidstown downstairs. Bless you. And you builders, there, there's, I don't get a lot of time to spend with a lot of you, but I'm so grateful for, for your example, for your faithfulness, for the sacrifices that you have made. I, I'm, I'm inspired by that, and I, and I hope that we can leave similar legacies for future generations in our own regard. Millennials, I think the world of you, I really do, I think you have it rough. There have been some things that have just not been fair to you. And I'm sorry about that. And millennials, I, I hope you keep hanging in there, and I hope that you show the world something incredible and special and powerful. And I hope that you rely on God's grace to overcome many of the obstacles that are holding you down. But you are really great at championing people's voices. You are really great at advocating for others. And I hope you continue to do that. And I hope that's one of your legacies that you leave. And Zs, I can't wait to figure out what you become. I mean, the oldest of you are in your early 20s now, and you're going to be getting jobs, and you're going to be entering the workforce. Some of you are going to be preaching in our churches soon, and I look forward to hearing that. I mean, Zs, I mean, you are... And the literature is out there now. Like you, you have an understanding of how society ought to be because you have been reacting against millennials and boomers. And if you knew anything about the Xers, you would try to get us as your teachers and your examples, but you don't know anything about Xers because we've kept that well hidden. And so finally, Xers, my fellow Xers, maybe it's time for us to sneak out from, the sh from behind the shadows and to lead in the ways that we know how to lead. I have a vision for Xers that we might become the peacemakers between our respective generations. Because we have a tendency of understanding nuance. We have a tendency to understand irony. And we're pretty proficient in understanding paradox. And we just have really great taste in music. <laughs> and the world always needs some good music. But Xers, there's an opportunity for us to lead. I'm going to skip ahead if you don't mind. Oh, no, I can't. It's actually really important. Um, let's go to verse 25 and 26, because um, I want to talk more about the Holy Spirit, but, but I was so excited to talk to you about music. Before the music comes the Holy Spirit, okay? And in fact, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, the music doesn't mean anything anyway, okay? It don't mean a thing unless it ain't got that Holy Spirit. That's what the jazz song was, right? All right, verse 25, it says, Since this is the kind of life we have chosen, the life of the Spirit, let us make sure that we do not just hold it as an idea in our heads or a sentiment in our hearts, but work out its implications in every detail of our lives. That means we will not compare ourselves with each other as if one of us were better and another worse. We have far more interesting things to do with our lives. Each of us is an original. Oh, that's good. I mean, when I read that, I, I think to myself, yes, this. I mean, I want to return to the question that was posed in our video from my friend Bassam. Who can teach me to live by the Spirit? How can we learn to live by the Holy Spirit? And for the longest time, I also struggled with, with understanding the Holy Spirit because it's, it's a little bit more complicated than understanding as the first person of the Trinity, God the Father. And we have all this literature on the second person of the Trinity, Jesus the Son. But the third person of the Trinity, God, the Holy Spirit, is a little trickier. So a quick primer. Third person of the Trinity, 
Christian theology teaches that the Spirit is a person. And that's really important. The Holy Spirit is a he, not an it, not a vibe, not a thing. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, and he is a person. And we read a lot, we get to read about uh, the Holy Spirit in particular places in the Gospel of John, but also in Acts, that Jesus sent the Spirit to be the mediator, to be the helper between us and God. So theologically speaking, the Spirit is the person of the Trinity that is in our midst now. So when we pray, you know, sometimes we say, Jesus be with us now, but like, if, you were, if we were being proper theologically, it would be the Holy Spirit that it is in our midst. The scriptures teaches that Jesus has taken his seat with God, next to God the Father, and now it is the time of the Holy Spirit to reign and to empower and to work. The Holy Spirit is the person who gives us grace and power in our daily lives. And it is the Holy Spirit that is at work in our world. And there's so much more, but that gives us a decent start. I would really like to encourage you, if you're new in your Christian journey, not to trip over this too much. So if you're trying to pray and you're like, Show my, who am I praying to right now? Pray to Jesus, pray to God, pray to the Holy Spirit. It's three in one. It all works. The important thing is that you pray, okay? So don't trip over these things, but just if, if, if uh, for those of you who are a little bit beyond that, that's a little bit of theology there. But how, how do we live by the Spirit? Here's what I really want us to settle on. One, understanding that our selfishness is in the way. If you're, finding, if you're finding it difficult to live by the Spirit, your selfishness might be in the way. The NIV translates the idea of selfishness as the flesh. And, and you know, the way that we kind of talk about things today, like about, about, our, about our bodies and, and so on here in the West especially, the word flesh is, is a little bit trickier. So the word selfishness may, maybe gives us a little bit of an easier way to, to, to respond. But we have these selfish desires and these impulses that lead to actions and behaviors and habits and mentalities. And all of that selfishness needs to be confronted. So that's the first part. Understand our selfishness is in the way. Second, then ask the Spirit for help in yielding to the Spirit's work. Ask the Spirit for help to yield to the Spirit's work. One of my favorite prayers often takes place in the morning, but also throughout my day, where I'm just saying, Lord, I need your help. I pray in the middle of my day when, I, when I'm looking at my inbox. Oh my, oh Lord. It's not, it's not even using the Lord's name in vain. It's like, oh my God, I need your help. I don't know how to respond to this in a gracious way. And I don't know how to respond to this in a way that's not going to take up 20 more emails of the same thread. Lord, have mercy on me. And I want to be faithful in this moment too. Not just because I'm a pastor, but because this person is created in your image and this person is probably hurting and this person needs somebody to care and I don't know how to do all of that. Lord, would you help me? I feel that like when I'm, I'm picking up certain people's phone calls None of you, none of you. I love all your phone calls. <laughs> but to pick on somebody I'm not going to run into in a while, there's always that guy back from college who calls you up out of the blue, and when he calls you, you're like, oh no, here we go. <laughs> you answer, he's almost like in mid-sentence as it is. You'll never believe what happened. And it's not a fun story. <laughs> 
I, I, I pray when, before I pick up these phone calls, like, Lord, I, I want to be a faithful person in this, in, in this person's life right now. Will you help me? Because I don't know if I can in my own strength. It's yielding to the Spirit. It's, it's, it's yielding to the Spirit when you, when you know that you need to forgive, but you don't know how you're going to forgive. It's yielding to the Spirit when you know that you need to exercise patience, but you don't know how to find this, this newfound patience, especially when you just find yourself at the end of your rope. It's yielding to the power of the Spirit when you know that He's calling you to do something that is way beyond your comfort zone. But maybe it's perfect for your skill set. Maybe it's perfect for your experience. Maybe it's something that only you can do, but it's beyond your comfort zone, and you need the Spirit's power to do that. That's the second, asking the Spirit for help and yielding to the Spirit's work. And then the third, if you want to live by the Spirit, as you do those things, confronting your selfishness and yielding to the Spirit, then in faith, you get to experience God's supernatural love and power and grace in your life, in your community, and throughout all aspects of life. You kind of just get to have a moment and see that God is not just working in your life, but all around. And you say, God, help me to be awakened. Help me to recognize all that you are doing because I want to be a part of that. And that is a life of freedom happening all around you because you are serving that. And there is joy and blessing that comes in that. Here's what I want you to walk away with. We cannot experience grace without yielding control to the Holy Spirit. We cannot experience grace without yielding control to the Holy Spirit. If grace seems elusive, then maybe our understanding of the Holy Spirit seems a little foreign. And we have to invite the Spirit to be at work in our lives when those three steps so much more to say, but I want to, I want to cut to the conclusion here because I've, I think I've said almost quite enough. But I went to one of these generational gatherings recently. All these people gathered, and it was, it was beautiful. It was a Bob Dylan concert that happened on, on Tuesday. Did, did anybody go see Bob Dylan and Lowell? Yeah? I, 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 see, I see these hands. You, you guys actually look familiar. I, I, uh, I think I was, yay, you guys are there. And you'll, you'll see Kevin Sawyer on the left. He used to be our drummer over there. And we have our lead guitarist, Kyle, and his wife, Karen, and his daughters over here. And there's some people back there that want to be part of our, 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 our crew. But, but, you know. No, but the Bob Dylan concert, if you go back to that first picture, I've been listening to Bob Dylan for about 20 years. I found him in college. And, like, it was, like, it was, it was just an incredible thing. Because, like, he, he was not supposed to be what I would, yeah, he was not what I was supposed to be listening to at that stage in my life. And I have this wonderful friend named John who's like, Tim, you have to listen to Bob Dylan if you, if you want to really understand music. I didn't know, so sometimes John is perfectly right on some things and sometimes he's dead wrong and he was just absolutely right on this. And so I started I start through the albums. And one song in particular really just, just hit me. It's called The Hard Rain Is Gonna Fall. And it's a song, called, it's a song that begins with, Oh, where have you been, my blue-eyed son? Where have you been, my darling young one? And the idea is like the son reporting back to his father all these incredible things that he has seen. And it's all in this like poetry. It's all in this hyperbole and imagery. And, and just a few, I mean, it's a, such a really long song, but you know, one line is, I saw a newborn baby with wild wolves all around it. But then I saw a highway of diamonds 
with nobody on it. And this idea like the, of danger, but also this idea of beauty that was missed. I saw 10,000 talkers whose tongues were all broken. I saw guns and sharp swords in the hands of young children. I met a young child beside a dead pony representing children with broken dreams. I met a young girl and she gave me a rainbow. I met a man who was wounded in love. I met another man who was wounded with hatred. And it's a hard, and it's a hard, and it's a hard, and it's a hard rain gonna fall. I mean, the song is about a loss of innocence. And it speaks to the need of salvation in a very complicated and painful life and world. But can I tell you something tonight? As a Christ follower, I'm not just trying to reclaim my innocence. The world has to do better than just find a way to reclaim its innocence. As a Christ follower, I'm praying for redemption. My redemption and your redemption and joining God in his redemption of all things. And it's in that, it's in that redemption, it's in that grace that only God's grace can heal our world. And as much as I love Bob Dylan's show, only God's grace can really change things, can really revolutionize things. And so friends, as we experience the fullness of grace, we have to then yield to the Spirit's leading. We then have to yield to the Spirit's control. And we then have to experience grace in the fullness of the Spirit's power. So as we close, we're going to sing a few songs on the other side of this message. And I want to invite you to reflect. I want to invite you to pray, not just sing, but like to pray sing, okay? That's like next level worshiping here, okay? I want you to reflect and I want you to sing and I want you just to ask God, God, what are you speaking to me into my heart and into my life right now? In what ways do I need to yield to the Spirit's control? In what ways do I need you, Lord, to put something in my life away? In what, need, what ways do I need you to make something in my life alive? And Holy Spirit, would you empower that? But friends, I mean, okay, boomers. Okay, millennials. Okay, alpha and okay, Zs. And I, of course, I'm going to forget about the extras because that's what we're supposed to do. But what if we, instead of just loving the generations, we just loved our neighbor as Jesus taught us? May you discover and experience Jesus' beautiful and redemptive grace. And friends, may you know what it means to live by the Spirit. Will you pray with me?